Thanks, Jim. Hey, you can have a seat. My name is Daniel. I get the opportunity to teach God's word today uh, and serve as lead uh, pastor here. You may be wondering why we sung one song at the front. We're going to respond in worship today uh, like we would normally do before uh, our sermon. But this is week three of Faith That Lasts. In this series, we've been walking through uh, the book of Jude uh, and asking this question, how do we have a faith or a relationship with Jesus that stands the test? of time or through the mountaintops and valley moments of our lives. So if you have a copy of God's word, uh, that's going to be our text today, Jude 5 through 16. Uh, In Jude verse 5 through 16, he unpacks all the thoughts that he had in verses 3 and 4, more specifically uh, verse 4. But as you're turning there, I want to tell you uh, a story of sorts. Uh, When I was in high school and college, uh, I participated in a lot of uh, extracurricular activities uh, tied to like leadership and leadership development and a a variety of different things. And when I was in high school, my student ministry that I was a part of, uh, the core leaders went to this 4-H camp to do this uh, leadership team building trust weekend exercise. We stayed the night one night and the next day uh, we, we got ready and they, this, the 4-H staff took us through all these different activities. The very first thing that we did was we divided the group into two uh, different segments. And the first uh, people were, they were the communicators or the people that were most likely to speak first. And you can bet I was in that group. And the second group was those who were more reluctant to speak, or they were more the observers or the uh, inquisitive uh, group. And so they were the second group. And the the job that we had was to pair up one to one, each one of us, uh, one from one group, one from the other, and pair up. And they gave us one blindfold. And you can guess where this is going. The the communicator had to put on the blindfold. And the first task that we did as uh, two and a pair, we navigated through this kind of slight obstacle course down to this lake. And there was a canoe there. And then we got in the canoe. There was only one paddle. The person with the blindfold had to be the paddler. And the other one was just giving commands like turn left, turn right, whatever the case may be. Paddle, stop paddling, back, all these different things. And all the way through this course. And the next thing we did is we, it kind of got more and more intense as we went throughout the day. We did like a, a one foot type rope that we had to navigate through this like obstacle course on this tight rope and culminating in the final thing of the day, which was a 37 foot high, high ropes course. Um, and we finished everything. We were, we were hot, we were tired. We were ready for the, the day to be over. And they took us to feed us dinner and we had to uh, like debrief all the things that we learned. And as a quarter of this debrief, they asked us this question, do you feel like your trust grew throughout the day? And everybody's like, yes, absolutely. We learned all these different things and we talked about our experience on each different obstacle course and all these different things that we did. And they, they stopped us and they said, would you be surprised if I told you that your trust actually didn't grow throughout the day? But actually, we were just inviting you based on changing circumstances to return to the trust that you had when you picked your partner. Because when you picked your partner, you you paired up with the individual that you wanted to be with throughout the day. And you had to choose to trust to put on a blindfold. You had to choose to trust to take each step that they invited you to take. And based on the changing circumstances, we were inviting you to return to the same trust that you had at the start. Because as our day went, the context shifted dramatically. Trusting to take one step under stable ground versus 37 feet suspended in the air was a very different for us for trust. 
But the reality was it was simply learning to trust that other person the same way you trusted them when they were just simply inviting you to take a next step and you knew exactly what your environment was. And Jude here in this passage, how does that relate? Here is our target statement for this morning. To learn to rely on Jesus like you did at the start. Because Jude, through eight different examples, six from the Old Testament, two from extra biblical sources, Jude reminds and illustrates all these different examples of those who stopped trusting God. And this complicated passage is going to uh, teach us this one simple truth. For us who are genuine followers of Jesus to learn to rely on him like we did at the very beginning or the start of our relationship with him. Behind me on the screen, you're gonna see an outline of uh, Jude verses five through 16. And you can see these four clear segments in it, uh, if you will. If you're uh, tempted to write all this down or take a picture of it, if you go to jcsignup.com, the very top block, says uh, faith that lasts week three notes because there's a lot of them this morning. So if you just want that PDF, it's graciously given to you. And there's even more resources in that PDF as well. So this outline, as you can see, verses five through seven, what you're gonna see is there's three Old Testament examples of groups of people who sinned. And then we're gonna move into verse eight through 10 where Jude applies those examples to his context, to the people he's writing to. We knew from uh, week one, we know from week one that Jude is writing to genuine followers of Jesus. We don't know their age, their stage, their geographical locations, but that's who he's writing to. But what he's applying these truths to is those who are not genuine followers of Jesus because he's reminding them of these truths. And then in verses 11 through 13, you're gonna see Jude goes from groups of people who sinned to three specific individuals. These three specific individuals are not just people who sinned, but they are people who led other people down that same path. And so Jude is going to apply these truths that he's already applied to these groups broadly to these specific individuals that they sinned, but they also led other people down that same path. And then he applies all three of these other units with one application from a prophecy from First Enoch. So there's where we're headed. Uh, buckle up on this Labor Day weekend. Here we go. Verse five of Jude. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, Jude is acting here like every parent uh, has to act. You know, there's not much teaching that you do as a parent. Actually, you do teaching kind of one time and then you do a lot of reminding or reteaching over and over and over again. If you've ever been a child of a parent and you're like, I just got so tired of hearing my mom or hearing my dad say the same thing over and over and over again. It's because they were reminding you of what they had taught you. And we as God's kid need, needs a lot of reminding. We are very forgetful. We forget too often what we have already been taught. And Jude, acting as their father in the faith, their older brother in the faith, is simply reminding them. And he says, you once fully knew it. Like, I'm just simply reminding you of these truths. And if you look at the context of verses one through four, what is he reminding them of? He's reminding them of what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus, and you can really break genuine followers of Jesus down with three simple steps. What are the three things you need to know to be a genuine follower of Jesus? The first thing is that you and I, we're, we're not perfect. We're broken, we're flawed, we're, we're sinners. And we're in desperate need, number two, of a Lord and Savior or a leader of our lives and forgiver of our sins. 
We're in desperate need of someone to rescue us from outside of ourselves. Our salvation, our uh, direction in our life doesn't come from within us. It actually comes from outside of us. And we need someone to rescue us. And number three, that Jesus is the only one who is fit and faithful to be that leader and forgiver. That genuine Lord and Savior of our life. He is the only one fit and faithful. And Jude says that you, he's just simply reminding them of these truths that they already knew in this regard. That these truths are not something that we graduate from or we move beyond. That in all of his reminding, in all of his teaching or reteaching that he's about to do, he's not inviting them to be move past faith or move beyond faith. He's inviting them to return to the faith that they once fully embraced and they once had a firm grip on. That the you that Jude is reminding them of is that you need to be reminded of these simple yet profound truths of what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus. That Jude reminds us that there is this dividing line between those who genuinely embrace and follow Jesus with these three truths and those who like to reject one, two, or all three of them. Some people like to say, like to say that, no, I'm not actually as bad as the Bible wants to paint out me to be. I'm not that broken. I'm not a sinner. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just not perfect. I have a few flaws, but I just need some tweaks. That I don't need a leader, but a, a guide would be helpful. That I don't need a forgiver. Maybe I've made one or two mistakes in my life, but sinner, bound for eternity, separated from God, that's not who I am. Or, or they want to reject the fact that Jesus is the only fit leader and forgiver for life. That one or many of these things that they want to reject. But Jude is getting ready to prepare us to tell us that, that yes, in fact, that there is this dividing line between genuine followers of Jesus and those who aren't. And he is reminding them of these truths. And the first reminding is this first segment, verses five, six, and seven. You can see this reference behind me, kind of a chart-like, where these are the biblical cross-references. In verse five, he cites Numbers 14. In verse six, he cites Genesis 6. Verse seven, Genesis 18 and 19. We're one verse in to Jude, and we've already introduced four chapters of scripture. So when I said buckle up, that's why it's in this regard. So Jude mentions in verse five, he says it like this. And just a, a side note, a cliff note, if you're jotting down notes really fast, remember there is that PDF online because we're gonna move quick, all right? We're gonna move quick through this. He says this, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. So you may be some thoughts going off in your mind. If you know your Bible any well, you're like, wait, the, that Egypt saving, that's in Exodus. Why did you cite numbers? Well, you're right in the fact that the saving from the people out of the land of Egypt happens in the book of Exodus, but their grumbling and their concerns and where, when they are uh, judged is in Numbers chapter 14, this specific reference. Because what happens in the book of Exodus is there's this massive group of people, this nation now of Israel gets saved through the passing of the Red Sea and then God falls down the waters and destroys their enemies. That happened in Exodus chapter 14. But then they go out into the wilderness and they get a little upset every now and then. And ultimately it culminates in Numbers 14 where God judges a group of people who are in Numbers 14, 35, not just upset, but as it says, they are gathered together against me. That they aren't just frustrated with how things are turning out, 
But actually, the Lord speaking here in Numbers 14.35 says, he looks at the heart and the intent of every individual. And he says, there are the group of people that are not just frustrated, not just upset, but they're actually gathered together against the things of God. And what Jude is getting ready and in the process of teaching us is that those, that there are those who are questioning the faith. There are those who aren't followers of Jesus, but are curious. But then there are those who are not just pretending to be followers of Jesus, but there are those in this world that are actually against all things, the things of God, and they want to tear it down. And that's exactly who Jude is speaking about. But there's a few things that you may like perk up in your mind a little bit. Like the fact that it says that Jesus is the one who has saved the people out of the land of Egypt. You read that correctly. That Jesus, second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten son in the eternity past was active and involved in the Old Testament. That it is cited by Jude that it was him, the angel of Yahweh, who rescued his people out of the land of Egypt. In fact, the second person of the Trinity, God's one and only son, his business has always been about rescuing. It wasn't just this one-time rescue mission to save people from their sins and, and give his life on the cross. He's always been about rescue. It's always been his plan, his directive, and his drive. That It didn't start at his birth. It's always been his plan and his business as the second person of the Trinity. And you may bring up a second question, which is like, why would God destroy people he saved? Does this mean that someone or many people possibly could lose their salvation? My answer would be no, absolutely not. That actually uh, contradicts other things that Jude himself will say in week five, getting ahead of myself, but the sermon is all about the God who is able to redeem us is also able to keep us is what Jude says. And that'll be two weeks from now. But so what is going on here with with Jesus rescuing and then judging, rescuing and then putting to death? Well, a few things. First is, I don't think we can say that the nation of Israel being physically saved is exactly the same parallel as individuals today giving their life to Jesus as leader and forgiver or Lord and Savior. Simultaneously, just because one was in the crowd in Israel passing through the waters does not mean that they were also following the Lord wholeheartedly. That if they were just in the crowd, that does not mean the same thing in parallel. And so there's obviously all throughout the Old Testament a distinction from what you read in your Bible all throughout is the remnant of Israel, those who were genuinely following the Lord and those who were just ethnically Israel in that regard. So that's getting into the weeds, but there's a slight distinction. And in John, John will tell us in 1 John 2, 19, that there are those who leave the faith or leave the body of believers. And he says it like this, they went out from us because they were never of us. They were not of us. That it wasn't that they had something that they lost, but rather they never had anything in the first place. And the only distinction or the only way to know the difference in the two different individuals is the test of time. Jude will tell us that the only way to see if someone's life actually is genuinely following Jesus is re- retrospectively, looking back at their life and seeing if they've stood with Jesus through the tests of their life. Because in Numbers chapter 14, what happened in this specific instance is these individuals stopped trusting in God's provision for them and started wanting what he gave rather than him himself. And then in verse six, you move into what is probably one of the most complicated 
individual verses of scripture to interpret. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the reference, but there's also many other references that are uh, fringely connected, like Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And this verse specifically is a direct parallel in 2 Peter 2, 4. And it's talking about the angels who did not stay in their own position of authority. What in the world does that mean? And specifically, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is not only, uh, with Jude 6 being one of the most complicated individual verses, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is one of the most debated passages of Scripture. But as a note for interpretation, the best interpreter of Scripture is other Scripture. And Jude tells us specifically that what Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is talking about is angels or angelic beings who have left their position of authority. And because of that, their punishment is being kept in eternal change until the great day of judgment. So what in the world is going on here? Well, we know what Jude says. And if we look back, you'll have to look do your own Bible study because we're not going to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. But this is exactly what happens. That there are angels who left their own position of authority and left God's design. That they saw God's position as ultimate authority, as less valuable for their life. And they decided to step outside of it. So both Jude and Genesis and the rest of the Bible affirm that the Bible is a supernatural book that talks about more than we can simply see with our physical eyes. And that may weird you out. You're like, I just wanted some life inspiration. I didn't want to talk about like angels and demons and gloomy darkness, eternal chains, like great judgment day of fire. Well, it's in the book. Like it's, it's right there. It's, it's in the book. And Jude says that this passage is talking about angels. And what did the angels do? They stepped outside God's authority. And for that, they are kept in eternal chains as an example, Jude is going to tell us. It may be uncomfortable for us to even think about that. Like, how does that work? What does that mean? But Jude affirms this. And the best interpreter of scripture is other scripture. But then we move to verse 7. And verse 7 is about two cities who they're punished for their sexual immorality and unnatural desires. But this isn't the only reason that they get punished. Ezekiel tells us that they're also punished for their unfair treatment of those who are poor and needy, for widows and orphans. And this city is judged for not trusting in God's plan or following their own passions and desires. So these three examples, not trusting God's provision, not trusting God's authority, not trusting God's plan. What does this teach us? Is Jude isolating these three types of sins as more uh, dangerous or worse off than others? I think what Jude's doing here is he's getting this such a broad spectrum of sin to teach us that not to scare us onto the good path, but rather to illuminate our eyes to see that this kind of living engulfed in sin with lack of repentance is a proof or the word he uses example of how people have lived across time. That the Bible is a book written in a specific context, but it's not just talking about the past. And it's not just written for Jude's present, but also for our future. What, what, what does that mean? That the word that Jude uses here as example in verse 7, that these serve as an example, is the word that also means types. Like they're not just these people have lived, but these people have lived, are living, are going to live. 
of people who are in utter rejection to God, either in utter rejection to God's provision, his plan, his authority, his power, doesn't matter, just in utter rejection to who God is in this life. And they don't want anything with him. And Jude is gonna get ready to apply this in his context of what they are doing. Verse eight, yet in a manner like these people also relying on their dreams, defiling the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. So Jude, how does he go about unpacking these big groups of people who have left God's plan, left God's authority, left God's design? He talks about how they've sinned. He lists four things. They rely on their dreams. They rely on themselves. They don't want any outside authority in their life telling them how to live. They rely on themselves. But second, they defile the flesh or they, they're engulfed in their sinful passions. Is this another way to look at this, this phrase? They're engulfed or they're, they're just swallowed up in their life with how they wanna live and they live how they wanna live. And number three, they reject authority. And this rendering of the word authority is literally uh, another word for God's authority or uh, spiritual authority or scripture authority. They, have, they don't want any authority. Like, I don't want anybody telling me how to live my life in any way. But there's a weird phrase, they blaspheme the glorious ones. That word glorious ones is also accused to uh, verse five or in, and six and seven when it's talking about angels. Because in Jewish literature, angels were seen as the mediator of God's law. That God was the ultimate authority, that his word was like him himself, but then he also sent his mediators or his uh, law givers or interpreters. Think about the Old Testament prophets, that those who were uh, seen throughout all throughout the Old Testament to speak on behalf of the Lord. And for these individuals who live in this way, it says not only do they reject God's authority, and any other authority over their lives, but they blaspheme or they intentionally uh, disdain or they intentionally tear down, they intentionally push back any authority from God. You see that this is not talking about, I've said it multiple times, but I'll say it again. This scripture text isn't talking about people who aren't following Jesus, but curious who aren't following Jesus or don't consider themselves Jesus followers because they have these doubts about science and faith or they have these doubts about how does my faith intersect with this area of my life. It's not talking about people who are genuinely curious about faith. It's talking about those individuals who pretend to be followers of Jesus. They're on the inside as we learned last week, but they're in utter rejection to God and want to tear down anything attached to the name of Jesus. And they are utterly gathered together against God. That's specifically who Jude is talking about. Because they trust in themselves. They are engulfed in sin. They blaspheme or they intentionally defame the name of Jesus and anyone who speaks on his behalf. This is who they are and how they live. But in verse nine is when Jude introduces the first uh, non-biblical reference to sight. Verse nine says this, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. 
Now, for those of you who have uh, read maybe through the Bible every year, you do like a year-long Bible reading plan, and, or you've just grown up in church, you're like, man, I've never heard about a story about Moses' body and the devil and Mike. Like, where did this come from? You can probably see behind me the, uh, the biblical cross-references chart about Daniel 12, 1, Deuteronomy 34, and Zechariah 3. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34 is about the burial of Moses. Uh, Daniel 12 is speaking about uh, Michael. And then Zechariah 3 is probably the closest biblical backdrop to uh, this reference in Jude 9. But it's a direct uh, takeout from a, a non-canonical work called the Assumptions of Moses. And now if your head's spinning, it's because it's uh, like... Apocry- uh, it's in the Jewish like apocrypha. It's, it's not in the Bible. So if you were reading through it, you missed that one. There's a reason for that. But Jude, by bringing this up, isn't bringing this up to say like, well, that's also scripture or this is also inspired by God. He's bringing this up for probably two main reasons. Number one, he's using it as an illustration that his audience knows the story because they're Jewish and they were engulfed in this literature. It would be the equivalent of me bringing up any modern day news reference that you would just immediately know, like, oh, I know what he's talking about there. Like, he, you would just know that's the reference. And so Jude is bringing this up because his audience knows this story. And second, it illustrates his point. What is his point? He's just gotten through, walking through all these references about people who left God's design, left God's plan, left God's provision, basically have turned their back on God. They, they want nothing to do with how he calls them to live. They want nothing to do with his authority at all. But let's talk about Michael. Michael is the commander of the Lord's army. He's top rank in all the angelic beings. And there's this instant where he is arguing with Satan over the dead body of Moses. We can talk about why they were arguing about that later in the lobby because we don't have time for that. But in this instant, the highest ranking angelic being is arguing with the one who's gotten thrown out of heaven for rejecting God's authority. If there's anyone who can call on their own authority or pull out a flame and sword and say, back up devil, I'm gonna cut you, like, or whatever he wants to do, it's Michael. But in this instant, Jude is illustrating, even Michael at his high rank stays under God's authority. And what does he say? The Lord rebuke you. He wants to remain under God's authority. No matter how high he climbs, he's under God's authority. He still recognizes there's still one that is over me. No matter how many people I'm over, I'm still under God. No matter where I go in my life, I'm still under God. And so in this instance, I don't need my authority to, to, to come after you, devil. I don't, I don't need my authority to fear you. You fear the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. And he wants God to handle it because no matter where he goes, no matter what, how his life changes, Michael is citing God's own authority. And how Jude is using this is to get his people in that frame of mind because they've had all these examples about people who didn't care about God, didn't care about God's authority. But in this instance, it's like, let's talk about the most crazy story out there when Michael stayed under God's authority. And that's what he is getting his people to see because now he's transitioning to three Old Testament examples of individuals who desired to not only their own life to reject God's authority, but to lead other people down the same path. In verse 10, he says this, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand 
And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. See the three references in verse 11 behind you. Uh, Cain in Genesis 4, Balaam, Numbers 22, which his story extends to Numbers 24, and Korah in Numbers 16. How do these people reject God's authority? Well, Cain is known as the first murderer. He's evil, he's hateful. He's in Jewish literature known as the first heretic who not only murdered and uh, blasphemed God with his sacrifice, but he is known as if anyone does those things, it's you're walking in the way of Cain. That you've car- he's carved the path for evil for other people to follow, to, to follow what they desire and how they want to live. In Balaam, in verse 11, references Numbers 22 through 24, Balaam works for selfish and greedy gain. He appears like he has the right heart in mind. If you read Numbers 22 to 24 this week, it's like, oh, Balaam looks like a good guy at points. But in the end, he's only there for greedy gain and selfish gain and, and leads other people to walk away from God and many of them get judged for it. And then Korah in number 16, he leads a group of individuals against Moses because he wants to go back to Egypt. He's like, I'd rather have the meat in Egypt than this junk. Like he doesn't want God. He doesn't want these things. And that's the story in number 16 where the earth opens up and swallows them. All right, if you didn't think the Bible was exciting, you just, there's three really great stories there. Because you see what Jude points out is their decisions and their deception, not only in their own life, thinking they're following God, but then they they hit this turning point where they're like, nope, I don't want anything. I actually want total rejection to that. And they want other people to follow. That their decisions and their deception, Jude gets very detailed in his language. He says these people are pointless. Pointless direction in their life pointless to even have around. This is how he says it. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up phone of their own shame, wandering stars for whom gloom and of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That phrase uh, in verse 12, love feast, that's simply just to reference the Lord's supper or communion. And it says they feast without any fear. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul would tell us that you don't take the Lord's Supper in vain or with sin on your heart. Because if you do, if you do in an unworthy manner, as he says, and without the right proper uh, inward reflection, that you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. These people, well knowing where they stand with God, well knowing what their actual intentions are, eat without fear. They have utter, they just utterly despise God. They do it in such a manner with the wrong spirit. They have no desire to honor God with anything in their life. So see again, this is not people who are genuinely curious about faith, questioning faith. It's it's not, that's not who Jude's talking about. Jude is talking specifically towards those who are gathered together against God and they are pointless. They, They are like clouds without water. There's no rain. They're like trees without fruit no food. They're like shepherds who don't feed their flock. It's pointless. Jude over three examples. It's, it's, they're, they're pointless. There's no benefit. And then he introduces verse 14, which is the conclusion about all these examples. 
He says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all these harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You see, Jude is again reminding people that Jude isn't just talking about people who have lived in the past or are living right now in his moment, that the Bible transcends time with its truth, that these are types of people who live in rejection to God and who he is. And Jude says that Enoch talked about these, seventh from Adam. That's a really early in the story of scripture, seventh from Adam, really early on. But again, he cites Enoch's prophecy from first Enoch. He does it for two reasons. Same two reasons he would bring in the assumptions of Moses. The people would know it and it illustrates his point. He says that Enoch was speaking truth, but just because it was truth in this one prophecy in first Enoch doesn't mean that what Jude is saying is that first Enoch should be included in our scripture. In the same way that Paul would cite uh, non-Christian poets in Acts chapter 17, he brings in these truths. That he says that this is a true statement. That this isn't necessarily needed to be considered in the six, six books of the Bible. But that doesn't mean it's not true. And Jude is pointing out to say that all followers of Jesus need to be aware of these people. And aware of their impact in their own lives. Like where in your life have you been tempted or allured to leave under God's design or his provision or step outside of his authority on anything or to leave any one of those foundational truths of faith that we are sinners we are in desperate need of direction as a leader a lord in our lives and a savior and Jesus is the only one fit and faithful to be that in our lives that every time you and I try to fill one or both of those roles, our lives go off the rails. Because remember, Judah isn't asking them to graduate beyond faith, but simply return to it. Because there's all these examples of those who left and judgment was theirs. You see, Jude is inviting us to learn to rely on Jesus like we did at the very beginning of our relationship with him. Because there are those who walk away from Christ who wanted nothing to do with him in the first place. They may have wanted the comforts of Christ, but they didn't want his conviction. They may have wanted the promises from Christ, but they didn't want the process of his sanctification. They may have wanted the hope of heaven without the holiness of living. They may have wanted the benefits of Christ, but didn't want him being the boss of their life. They wanted heaven without the head of heaven. They wanted the king without the king on the throne. You see, we all are invited into this story to follow Christ, to want him with everything he is and learn to trust him. To trust him with every area of our lives, to simply trust him. You know, we have three kids, Rena and I do, and our middle son, his name is Sabbath Jude. He's only, he's about to be two years old in a couple of months, but Sabby has this trust like no other. He'll run up to me uh, when I get home from work and he'll, he'll, I'll pick him up and I'll 
when I get him up to my arms, he just trust falls. He becomes like wet spaghetti noodles, just falls. He'll do it everywhere, but he doesn't do it with everyone. He only does it with mom and dad. When he's safe, when he's, when he's there. You see, the context can change. We can be in the lobby at church. We can be in a restaurant. We can be in Walmart. We could be at home. The context can change, but his trust remains the same because he simply knows I'm with dad and dad's never dropped me. No matter where he goes, full trust. You pick him up. You gotta be ready at all times if you're me because he could just fall back. Just wet spaghetti noodle. All 35 pounds, like just wet spaghetti noodle. He's growing. It's getting a little bit more difficult to make sure you don't drop him. But he has that full trust. So as we wind down and begin to just respond in worship to this, I want you to reflect on your life. The decisions you've made, the, what your relationship with Jesus was like at the start and how up to this point, how have your decisions in your life that you've made communicate, I trust Jesus? What about what you're working towards in your life? Does it communicate, I trust Jesus? When you're scared in your life because of a job change, relationship change, health change in your life or somebody in your family, does it communicate the way you respond, I trust Jesus? the direction you're headed, what you want and desire in your life, whether that's status, monetary gain, accolades, does it communicate? I trust Jesus. And this isn't to neglect that there's wisdom or that any of these things are evil or should not be pursued after, but it's just asking the question that the way you're going about it or your heart's intent, does it communicate? I trust Jesus because all Jude wants to communicate is not to graduate us beyond faith or something different than faith, but simply with every passing moment in the valleys of life and on the mountaintops in the process to just rely on him, never leave him. of simply living in a faithful way under God's authority, trusting in his power, his provision, his plan, his direction for our lives. Through every season, I trust Jesus. I don't graduate from him. I don't move past him. I sit right here. I camp out right here. So for the next few moments, we're going to sing and we're going to respond and declare these truths of who Jesus is and what he means in our lives. And as you do it, and as you go about your week, as we get the service prepares to end in like another 20 minutes or so, I want this one question to ring in your minds that through this worship time, through this week. And it's simply this, where do you this week need to rely on Jesus more? So if you would, would you stand and would you sing with us?